You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 7. We're looking this morning at this book and reading together verses 1 through 29. You'll find this on page 915 of the Pew Bible, 914, excuse me. And we'll be reading the first 29 verses. Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 29. Hear the word of God. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed on all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. 
He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Well, Stephen, as we have discovered, was a spirit-filled man full of grace and power, performing many miracles. And certain Jews resented his ministry and stirred up opposition against him. He was arrested and made to stand before the great Sanhedrin and false witnesses were misinterpreting his teaching to make it seem like blasphemy. But the high court, according to Luke, was unable to withstand the wisdom and spirit that, was, that were within him. The great signs and wonders that he performed proved the truth of his message. And as he faced his accusers, he says that his face was like the face of an angel. It was the shining countenance of one who enjoyed fellowship with God. And we saw in this an expression of the age-long conflict between the two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the flesh, or seed of the serpent. God promised to put enmity between the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent. In regeneration, the spirit would overturn man's friendship with the devil. In the believer's soul, there would be a complete reversal of disposition. His mind would be enlightened. His will would be miraculously renewed, and his deepest desires would somehow, by the Spirit's power, be sanctified. And as a follower of Christ, he would then love what God loves and hate what God hates. And of course, this would stir up the animosity of the devil's seed against him. So... Paul says, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. And human history since the fall has been characterized by that great conflict. At times, it's more pronounced than at others, but it runs through every century. The enmity between the seeds. And the children of God have been opposed and persecuted by the children of the devil. Stephen then is just one in a long line of believers who had to endure ill treatment. So as he stood before the great Sanhedrin, he was required to give an account. The high priest said, are these things so? And it was a formal question equivalent to... Do you plead guilty or not guilty? Did you, in fact, profane two of the most sacred features of our holy religion? These were very serious charges, of course. It carried a very severe penalty. If convicted of blasphemy, then Stephen would be put to death. Nothing less. It's only natural then that he would defend himself and bear witness. And so he begins by rehearsing 
the important events in the history of Israel. And his summary of Old Testament history is an incredible digest of God's plan of salvation. And of course, the great council, being Jewish, was as familiar with these events as he was. But he would draw from these lessons that they had never learned, apparently. And it was a very important opportunity for Christ's servant to testify. And note how he responds to the high priest's question with the greatest of courtesy. After all, God's people are to be courteous. Brothers and fathers, hear me. And these were titles of respect and affection because he sincerely cared. As Paul says to Timothy, the Lord's servant must be able to correct his opponents with gentleness. And Stephen could not make a plea of either guilty or not guilty because he had to explain his teaching with regard to the temple and the Old Testament law. It wasn't as simple as that. Yes, he had said these things that they had to be fulfilled and these things were no longer needed. Temple, law. No, he did not blaspheme because this was all part of God's plan. And therefore, Stephen had to rehearse that plan to explain his teaching. That's why the long speech. And it's obvious that Stephen was a man who was steeped in the Holy Scriptures. Very well acquainted with the history of redemption. Hence, we say that he was a believer filled with the Holy Spirit, mighty in the Scriptures. And that's the commendation that makes a strong believer. Filled with the Spirit, mighty in the Scriptures. That's how God sanctifies. What a privilege it is. Just to pause for a minute. A privilege to have the very Word of God. A supernatural book. It is by this inspired word that souls are converted and brought home to God. Isn't that incredible? This is the instrument, this book that he chooses to bless in the saving of sinners. And like Stephen, King David had such a deep appreciation for the word of God. Oh, how I love your law, he said. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it's ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. And I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. It was God's word that made David wise. That's how you get wisdom. If someone cares little for wisdom, let him ignore the scriptures at his own peril. But if you want to gain wisdom, then devote yourself to the word of God. It was David's meditation. He was constantly mulling over it in his mind. And Stephen was no different. He had been well trained in the scriptures. How well do we know the scriptures? He was a man of good repute, it says, full of the spirit and of wisdom, because there's no other way to grow in true wisdom than by knowing the Bible. The simplest person 
who is governed by God's inspired word, is among the wisest in the world. He avoids the worst of dangers, hell itself, and he secures the greatest of all blessings, heaven. He's wiser than his enemies. He's wiser than his teachers. He can be wiser than the aged. That's what David says. So Stephen's speech follows the well-known history of God's plan of salvation, and he begins by highlighting the call of Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Because God had promised to make him a great nation and give him a great name and to bless all the families of the earth through him. So Abraham responded to this call and becomes the grandfather of Israel. And so it's no surprise that in tracing redemptive history, Stephen underscores Abraham. After all, Paul says that he was the father of all who believe. And God's promise of blessing all the families of the earth is coming to fruition. Look at this sanctuary filled with people. I don't know how many Jews are here, but I can tell you there's a lot of Gentiles. The gospel of Jesus Christ is spreading around the globe. And no longer is it necessary to worship and sacrifice at the temple. And the law of Moses has finished its job of protecting the line of Christ. So it's obsolete. Its ceremonies are fulfilled. Salvation is offered among all nations. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Stephen got it. With the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, history enters this new phase. The Apostle Paul implies this very thing when he makes reference to the Messianic age. Listen to this. He says, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The end of the ages. Is that how you think of present day history? You're living in the end of the ages. It's a reference to the final epoch in the history of mankind. So we have salvation being accomplished, the messianic age beginning, and the ingathering of God's people. And when that last elect soul is drawn to Christ, the end will come. And we're told that the Lord Jesus will return in glory with all the angels in his train, and we'll be caught up to him with the clouds and be forever with him. And Stephen's point is this. We're now living in the last days. The end of the world is near. I don't have to wear a placard on the corner to say that. The end of the world is near. There are no further administrations beyond this gospel age. History will end. There will be a consummation. And the Lord Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. God has fixed a day, says Paul, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So when this epoch ends, we will be living in the new heaven and the new earth. It's near. 
So the coming of Christ ended the previous age, and it began the age that is now passing. And it was in light of that important truth that Stephen begins to explain his teaching. He's standing before the Supreme Court. And that's why the God of glory appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, where he and his family worshipped other gods. God called Abraham out of a context that was permeated with idolatry. Idolatry. Is that not amazing grace? Abraham was an idolater. And God told him to uproot himself from everything that was familiar and to migrate to a different country. And he removed him from his idols which is in fact what he does whenever he calls a sinner to trust in Christ. This is what Paul said to the Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Because each one of us was by nature an idolater. It's part of our spiritual DNA. We substitute other things for God by nature. We were made to worship And sin distorts that tendency so that we go away from God toward other things. It can be visible. It can be invisible. It can be children. It can be parents. It can be spouse. And enslaved to false gods, we had no inclination to serve the true and living God. But the power of the gospel is such that it can deliver us from idols. And the Holy Spirit replaces the old heart of stone with a new heart of flesh. And no longer is it a hard and flexible heart that's incapable of impression or giving affection. That's gone. Now we have this soft, tender heart that's capable of fellowship with God. How vastly different is the disposition of a regenerate person He or she is a new creature in Christ. And with the eye of faith, Stephen is able to appreciate God's majestic splendor. He's the God of glory, which the world rejects. The psalmist describes him as the king of glory. And he's so described in part, I think, because of his visible glory that was seen in the days of Israel. Remember, let me give an example from Leviticus 9. It says, Moses and Aaron blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. They saw it. And the Apostle Paul uses a similar phrase. If they had understood this, he says, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Stephen, he's talking about the God of glory who appears to Abraham in his idolatry and he makes him a promise. The land is going to be yours and it's going to pass down to your offspring who, by the way, are going to be enslaved and afflicted for 400 years and then I'm going to come and liberate them. And I make a covenant with you in fulfillment of my promise. The sign of the covenant was circumcision, which we're told is a sign and seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. 
And Stephen shows how God's plan was unfolding through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 patriarchs. God is faithful. His word cannot be broken. Not one jot or tittle will go unfulfilled. His promise can't be broken. He said that you and I, if we trust in Christ, are fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs. We're going to receive an eternal inheritance that you can't measure or calculate. And as unbelievable as that might sound, it's a promise that will be fulfilled. Heirs with Christ. And this should be a source of comfort to us because man may be false, but God is ever faithful. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds, said David. He never fails and he never forgets. And we can trust every detail of every passage. And throughout all the centuries, he's kept his word and he never lies. The devil, and there is a devil, and he is active. And the devil wants you to question, and he wants me to doubt, and he wants us to reject the promises God has made. But he's the liar. God's word is true, and he's faithful. And you can hang your eternity on what he says. And so Stephen continues, improving this to be true by pointing to Joseph, whom his brothers sold into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all of his afflictions. And so he rehearses Joseph's rise to second in command. The onset of a famine leads them to find out who he is, and he saves many. And once again, we see the faithfulness of God unfolding in his plan of salvation. And then, of course, he refers to Moses as the great liberator of Israel. This baby marked out as special from birth, raised as a prince in Egypt, mighty in words and deeds, kills an Egyptian, flees from Egypt because he supposed that his brothers would understand. But his attempt to liberate Israel at this point was poorly timed, and he would have to wait another 40 years before God would send him back. But the point is the faithfulness of God. So I think one of the things we draw from the first half of his speech, let's draw comfort from the historical record of God's faithfulness. His promise is as good as its fulfillment. You know, even though the Lord may sometimes delay a promise, he'll never deny it. His word may be likened to a seed planted in the ground that eventually sprouts and bears fruit. God promised to deliver Israel from Egypt, but it took 400 years. Think of the patience they had to have. And he may fulfill a promise in a totally unexpected way, but he'll never break it. He said, and we talked about this in Sunday school, that no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. So if it's good, he's going to give it to you. And we might interpret that as, well, good health, 
long life, fruitful endeavors. But instead, God may send affliction as a way to prepare us for heaven. Isn't that what David said? It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And none of us may ever expect hardship as the good thing that he doesn't withhold. But the point is, we trust in his faithfulness to fulfill his promise. And his faithfulness is our confidence with regard to the forgiveness of sins. This is what John tells us in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's what? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because sin brings guilt. Sin brings guilt, which if neglected will plunge us into misery. But God promised to take it away by the blood of Christ if we trust in his son. The sinner need only flee to him for refuge because God is faithful to forgive. And that faithfulness is the guarantee of our perseverance. Think of it. You and I are opposed in this world by the snares all around us, by the malice of Satan, by the lusts in our own heart. But fear not. Despite all opposition, God is faithful to bring us home. Jesus himself said, my father is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So your security and your safety as a Christian rests upon God's faithfulness. No one. Neither the world, nor the flesh, nor the devil is able to snatch you away. In fact, God's faithfulness pervades all the twists and turns of providence. Whatever happens in this world, read the newspapers, look at the internet, Google whatever you want. Whatever happens, he faithfully overrules it for our good. This fallen world is filled with dangers, those that are visible and those that are invisible. We can't see them all. How does anybody find comfort in the midst of a daily threats that surround us? How do you find comfort? Wars and rumors of wars. Floods, earthquakes, tornadoes. One just touched down not long ago. The corruption of government, the wickedness of man, the economic troubles that we face. How do you find comfort? The ongoing spiritual battle that's very real. So it's dangerous and it's frightening to live in a place without a sovereign God. But we're told that he is faithful and that undergirds our confidence. They shall be my people I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. So let me ask you on what you're resting your faith. Is it on the Lord's fidelity to the gospel? What else can we believe in? He alone has the words of eternal life. Thomas Watson's right. He says, the whole earth hangs upon the word of God's power and shall not our faith hang upon the word of God's truth? 
Can you trust in government? Can you trust in man? Can you trust in your own heart? I can't. I trust, hopefully, in the faithfulness of God. He cannot deny himself. He would cease to be God before he would cease to be true. So when you pray, believe that he hears you as you pray for Christ's sake, because he said he would. You come in the name of Jesus because God will not ignore the disciples of his son. After all, he numbers the hairs of your head. He ordains every day of your life, every one of them, before one of them come to pass. And I can say this, that he loves you, and he's keenly interested in every detail of your life and the ultimate destiny. As Paul said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's one observation, and I only have one more. I think what this tells us is that we can rejoice in God's redemptive purpose that elevates the mundane. It elevates the mundane. Doesn't it show that you and I should have a linear view of history? You know, Eastern religion, if you would study it, teaches that history is cyclical. It's a never-ending circle. It just repeats itself over and over again, and you can even have multiple lives if you want. But Stephen shows us here that history is on a plane heading toward a goal, and there's purpose to it. The consummation is on the horizon, and this imbues everything that you do with purpose. It has an ultimate goal. And this elevates and ennobles even the most mundane tasks of life. It's what we call a redemptive historical view. I want you to consider with me for a moment the great European cathedrals. I don't know if you know this, but those things often required hundreds of years to complete. Think of Bristol Cathedral in England. It was begun in 1218 and completed 1905, 688 years in construction. After the Great Fire of London in 1666, the famous architect Christopher Wren was commissioned to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral. Huge. So one day in 1671, this is five years after begun, he observed three bricklayers working hard on the project. To the first bricklayer, Christopher Wren asked, what are you doing? To which the bricklayer replied, well, I'm a bricklayer. I'm laying bricks to feed my family. To the second, he asked, and, it was, and he replied, I'm a builder. I'm building a wall. The third said, I am a cathedral builder. I'm building a great cathedral in honor of God Almighty. 1671. It helps to illustrate, I think, because if we have in mind the great plan of salvation, it raises our perspective. 
Everything we do, even laying a brick, has perspective and purpose. Let's imagine three young ladies come closer to home. Three young ladies with small children working very hard. To the first lady, we ask, what are you doing? And she says, well, I'm cooking and cleaning and changing diapers to feed and care for my family. Noble. We go to the second. What are you doing? Well, I'm laboring hard so I can make a difference for generations. Grandchildren, great-grandchildren. To the third, what are you doing? I'm gladly nurturing children of God for the sake of his eternal glory. Each of these ladies works hard. Each of these ladies is faithful and caring for her house, but their perspectives on the nature of their work are vastly different. The first lady sees only meeting the immediate need of her family. The second lady has a long-term generational perspective, but it's still in this life. The third lady views her labor from an eternal perspective as God's call. Everything she does has everlasting significance, and she performs the mundane tasks of the daily grind with the glory of Christ in view. Because Jesus said, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple of mine, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So she cooks meals, she washes clothes, she cleans house, and yes, she changes diapers with joy. She knows that she was created by God for a specific purpose at a particular time in history that nobody else can fulfill. And she's the only one divinely appointed for this work, and all of her labor has eternal significance. And the same is true for the student and the teacher, the businessman and the tradesman. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said this, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. How about you? Are you laying bricks, building a wall, or constructing a cathedral? Are you meeting needs, serving generations, or helping to fill the courts of heaven? Are you able to look at history in your life as Stephen viewed history? Do you see the hand of providence at work directing all the affairs of your life? And have you stepped back and considered the ultimate goal of things? The consummation is on the horizon. And the Lord Jesus is going to come back and everything we say or do happens in light of that ultimate occurrence. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.